Welcome to CinemaScope, a new podcast from True Story FM. Hi, I'm Andy Nelson, co-host of the Next Real Film podcast and Movies We Like. As a passionate movie lover, I've always relished exploring the diverse landscape of cinema. And when you look closer at the taxonomy of genres, subgenres, and film movements, you see an intricate web of interconnections and influences. This complex cinematic family tree spans only 125 years. So how did styles as diverse as the French New Wave, New Queer Cinema, and Ozploitation emerge? What cultural, economic, and technological forces sculpted these styles? And what hidden threads unite them all as part of the same fantastic art form? Those questions sent me on a journey to explore each style and trace their impacts, all to better understand the bridges between different styles. And that led me here to CinemaScope. In each episode, I'll be exploring one particular genre, subgenre, or film movement in depth, inviting expert guests to help us all better understand what defines that style, how it came to be, and what branches it, in turn, influenced on this big cinematic family tree. For example, how did German Expressionism shape American film noir? What's the difference between Westerns, Spaghetti Westerns, and Brazilian Nordesterns? We'll examine the economic and socio-political forces that birthed categories like black exploitation, and we'll spotlight visionary films and directors key to the evolution of different styles. So join me as we explore the complex forces that shape film's evolution and appreciate the diverse creativity possible in its relatively brief history. Let Cinemascope be your guide to understanding this art form we cherish how its genres blend, bounce off each other, and advance a rich tapestry of storytelling innovation. Together, we'll gain a deeper appreciation for this wondrous, shape-shifting medium. Our journey begins soon. Be part of this adventure by subscribing to CinemaScope today. The trailer, uh, Andy, is deceiving because you expect there to be more What's the word? Old boys. Uh, <laughs> well, that fits your Detroit model of watching movies. <laughs> you expect there to be old boys. And in fact, uh, I think one could make the argument that there is, in fact, an old boy in, in this movie. But you do expect more Korean uh, in, in this movie. It actually, it was, it, it threw me because there's a lot of English in it. A lot of English text. No, no speaking. Right, right. No, there's no speaking. No speaking, but it's just a lot of time. I, I could read it, and I thought, do I read Korean now? This is amazing. Is this what it's like <laughs> to be multilingual? <laughs> Everything just looks English? This is amazing. That's that's You got to wait until we get to the Star Trek era, because then that's how it will appear. That's what, or, or what the Star Babel Wars fish. era. Exactly. That's what the Babelfish does. It just makes your eyeballs see everything in English. Is it the Babelfish? Andy, why are you going to pick a fight with me on on this right now? I don't know. I've heard it both ways. I landed on Babel this time. I don't know. I always, when I read it as a kid, I always thought it was Babelfish. And then I heard some enterprising nerd say Babelfish. And I thought, well, he's an enterprising nerd. I should do what he does. And now maybe I'm totally wrong. That's what you get for listening to enterprising nerds. Wait a moment. I have no thoughts of my own. Oh, so Can anyway, back to the trailer. trailer. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I thought was interesting about this trailer? I don't, Do I don't know. If it, it's interesting. 
well, it is interesting. I don't know if it's, um, I don't know what it says about the trailer cutters, but they use almost the first shot and definitely the last shot of the trailer yeah. <laughs> of the film yeah. in the trailer. And in like, the first shot, it's just a reverse angle, right? It, it is well, the, the second first shot. shot. It's, it's the, just second, the shot. second shot, right? Yeah. But then, but then they do cut to, I guess what you'd say is the third shot, which essentially is a continuation of the first. Yes. Shot. It's interesting. I, I found it quite interesting that they chose to use that last uh, shot of the film, uh, as, if you're not counting the shot that pops up when the credits start. But um, uh, it's it just is one of those things where it's like, I, I, I mean, in our conversations about trailers, we've grown to understand that the producers and the distribution companies like to throw in big moments from the films. We certainly get those here. A lot uh-huh. of the big action moments. We get the hallway fight. We get um, the the freaky little uh, albino assistant kind of throwing him through the air, like up through the air into the window. And let me just tell you, Andy, I, I had a thought about this. If you and I ever get in a fight, that is one thing you won't ever have to worry about me doing to you. <laughs> Like I can barely, I can barely lift my own body up over my feet, let alone uh, hurl you toward a window. That was a very, very fit fella. Very Very fit. fit. Whole lot of fitness. Anyway, you were saying. So he, uh, so we see all of these big moments. We we certainly see big emotional moments when he's screaming in the car and slamming his head against the 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 um, the roof of the car. Moments from his, the room, um, but then we get the last shot, and it's not a it's not a a shot that I felt defined any particular moment of the film. Other than I feel it 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 highlights a, a like a very big emotional resolution of the film however you want to view it. But in the trailer, I'm like, I don't know if it's benefiting the trailer. And I found it very perplexing that they actually chose to use that end shot in the trailer. I think it's perplexing too. But as I think about it, it is, uh, it shows that there is an emotional beat in this movie, right? That it's not just, um, it's not just the aggression. It's not just the violence and the action. And I, I sort of feel like this movie, it's, if it's going to attract a broader audience, it needs to have a moment of softness. And that is a moment of softness in the movie. It's totally irrelevant to the trailer narrative, right? Because it tells you nothing. It just demonstrates, hey, this movie's crazy and we also slow down. Even if we slow down at the very last minute, we also slow down because the other slowdown moments are like they're, they're still sort of angsty and dark. This is a moment that that demonstrates from the perspective of the trailer that we have a sensitive side. That there's think? some smiles and hugs. There's a little bit of smile. It's weird once you see the movie. Oh, dear. Um, but, but it's, it's there for the trailer. And I, when I think about selling the movie, I feel like that's what I, I'm going to need to do. I'm going to need to sell the softer side of old boy. Yeah. I feel like they, they could have found something in moments when he was kind of, uh, um, hanging out, uh, more with, uh, Mido. But then you don't have the contrast of color. The contrast of color in the snow is well, like, think about the snow, it. Like, her red outfit. I know. Exactly. I, I get it. I get it. I don't I just, think you get it. I want to talk about it more. Yeah. <laughs> I just feel 
that it's uh, if a if an astute audience watches the trailer, this is what we talk about behind the scenes with with the group and and people over in Discord. You know, those who don't watch trailers hate things like this because if they remember that shot from the trailer, then they're sitting there waiting in the movie for that shot to pop up, and and as it gets to the end, they go, "Oh, that's going to be at the end," and it can be disappointing. Yes, but. Yeah, it can be disappointing and or uh, doubly disappointing when you think about movies like Rogue One, where there was that beautiful shot in the trailer that was actually cut from the film. And so then you feel like you've actually missed something. Right. Yeah. I mean, then it's even more. Did I go to the bathroom? I don't remember going to exactly. the bathroom. Exactly. Maybe I, I don't did. remember. I thought <laughs> I went just in my pants because I didn't want to miss it, but maybe I got up. I don't know. Anyhow, um, please don't do that in the yes, theaters. That's pretty disgusting. That's all. This is the next reel, everybody. I'm Pete Wright, and that there is Andy Nelson. Hey, hey, hey. And we spoil movies. Tonight on the show, we're dangling off a building with the second in Park Chan-wook's Vengeance trilogy, Old Boy. Before we get into that, you should learn more about us at thenextreel.com. Subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast app, or follow us on Twitter and Facebook at The Next Reel. And if you enjoy tuning in and are interested in supporting our ongoing work investigating great film, please consider a regular donation through our Patreon page. You'll get to join our back-channel conversations over on Discord, help us pick movies for upcoming series, and listen to the members-only weekend show, The Saturday Matinee, where we talk movies, trailers, and more. Plus, we have a battle of the lists of movies related to our show that week. In honor of the film we're talking about tonight, this week's list will be movies featuring our favorite long takes in action scenes. Just head on over to patreon.com slash thenextreel. This movie is really painful. It's a tough one. Even even Park Chan Wook says, "Like, I'm sorry that you had to suffer through this." Yeah. <laughs> He's very apologetic for making a very uh, emotionally difficult film. It is. It's emotionally difficult. It's physically difficult. There are sequences in here uh, that that ig- just exhaust me. The the act of watching it is exhausting. It is a high calorie movie. Uh, because it does a, a, what I see as an exceptional job of putting me in uh, the perspective of our hero and going through what he goes through, and um, uh, you know, as a as a result, I'm I am exhausted. I am broken down at the end of this movie. I am curious. I want to start before we talk about the the balance of the movie. I want to start and talk about your experience watching the movie because I. Now, I, I watched it late at night and I was tired, but it I it never allowed me to go to sleep. And yet you have sent me text after text about the number of times you had to restart this movie because you kept falling asleep. Are you okay or is there something going on with the movie that somehow has broken you? No, I mean, I've seen this before and uh, not that that changes anything. I just, I have uh, turned into a person who wakes up early and when i try to do things in the evening it just it's a mistake and i haven't learned my lesson yet i'm hoping okay. at some some point i will figure Excellent. this out because okay. what happens is i start <laughs> i start things and inevitably i wake up at like two in the morning still on the couch uh and I'm like, oh, i better go to bed so this yeah, is one of those movies where there are sequences you may have seen a dozen times and others that you may have seen twice absolutely absolutely okay. i i guarantee it <laughs> 
it's well, because I, I, you, you sit there and you're like, okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna really make it this time. I know this is where I was, and then and then I fall asleep like within seconds. Or there are times where I'll make it a couple minutes, and it's just it's terrible. It's a it's a really bad habit, and I need to work through it because in a movie like this, it, it there really should be no reason to fall asleep. Well, that was my experience. How is it like? How damaged must your sleep schedule be that this movie allowed you to fall asleep? I did not. Uh, I, I did not have that challenge. Um, this this movie, I think, uh, it puts me just on the edge of my seat because you never know when they're going to pull out the hammer and do some dental work, and um, so it, I find it fascinating. It's also fascinating that it is uh, from a narrative perspective. It surprises me. It surprises me how quickly we are able to pass 15 years and get to the bulk of the story and not feel like a drag. Um, to me, it feels like the pacing of this film gets you into uh, – gets you through sort of what I'll call the, the kind of montage sequence uh, so fast and so efficiently and yet feels – doesn't feel like I've missed anything, right? I mean it doesn't feel like there are any holes uh, in in this this movie uh, that – that gets to the vengeance. It gets to the revenge. It gets to the violence, which is what I'm I'm expecting in the movie. And I I think it's fascinatingly efficient uh, in in that regard. I I was uh, right there with you, completely blown away as to how uh, Chan Wook constructs a story. We have such an amazing introduction to our protagonist that uh, it's it's really interesting and kind of. Uh, difficult look at Desu as he's this kind of this drunken, disorderly father who is, is, uh, you know, the police have him. And, uh, you know, this is our introduction to our, to our hero. It's, it's such a strange way to meet this character who right after that is kidnapped and disappears in front of his friend's face. Um, or when his friend turns his back just for a second. Yeah. And it was, it was, and then from there to jump into, um, the, the room where he's held, uh, prisoner and we have 15 years, all of which is done in like, you know, by the time we're 18 minutes into this film, he is being released. And I had forgotten that how quickly it happened in my, in my head. I thought the bulk of the movie was, was him in the, in the, um, in the room, which wouldn't have made a whole lot of sense or a very interesting film. Um, we go through it incredibly fast, and um, it's just it, it. And we noticed this in uh, "Sympathy for Mr. Vengeance." We certainly notice it here too. Uh, he has a very effective way of moving through space in his storytelling style, and it makes, in a way that's never in this film, I think, you know, a way that's never confusing. Like I, I followed it right along with the story the entire time. I never had to double back like I did with the previous film and go, okay, hold on. I don't know who this is. I don't know what's going on here. Right. Um, this was incredibly easy to follow. And the way that he did it, it was just, it was so beautifully done. It's, it's great, great cinematic storytelling. What is up with private prisons? Like, is this a thing? Do you think we have these? I mean, if, if anybody's going to have them, it's going to be Arizona. I haven't told you, Pete, but I'm actually recording. <laughs> From one. That's why I do podcasts. I, I can't actually leave. Well, that is the uh, that that's the premise here. That in these first eighteen minutes, it turns out that there are just these uh, apartments that have been converted. 
to private prisons and they, they apparently you can just call and have somebody thrown in a prison. Uh, it's like by appointment, appointment well, I prisoning. Think I think it's different than private prisons, <laughs> which is one thing. <laughs> what? But but really, uh, well, this you're is, right. This okay, is really so you're right. Like How do you the gang call it? This is an independent prison. prison. <laughs> it's an indie prison. There's a whole indie prison culture. <laughs> That uh, that it's sort of like um, themed hotels, right? This is the this is themed <laughs> prisons. <laughs> I, or I it found is, myself it is a really hotel in its own way, in yes. its own. <laughs> Somebody else pays service. for you to stay. Yeah, right. They do. And so that is the whole premise. He's just thrown into this private prison, which is, and you have to like look at, he's got a TV and there's a little desk. It looks like a kind of a low rent hotel room. He's got a little bed and, and that's where we, that's where we start. And that, that, wow, it, it just blew me away. I mean, I, the whole concept I thought was fascinating. I, I don't feel like I've ever seen that. <laughs> that before i mean there's you know gang kidnaps but this was like a full administrative operation like they have a call center and it's a thing where they'd answer the phone and say who do you want in jail we can we can do that that's crazy to me great yeah it also seems incredibly inefficient to be bad guys and running something like this because yes because inevitably they're going to have to have building inspections and they're going to have to pay taxes on the building and you don't want your people to unionize that's going to be exactly that's going to be trouble it's you it just creates know. all sorts of problems yes no i we need a whole separate podcast on that uh but that that's the whole premise of the thing we don't know why he's thrown in there 15 years go by and during these 15 years he uh he trains himself he draws a, a you know a person on the wall and he starts punching it until he calluses his hands. I think they do a fantastic job of showing him uh, sort of training himself. That is the one area that I find a little bit dubious, uh, a challenge of credulity, uh, that he comes out and is able to fight, you know, multiple gang thugs at a time. Uh, and he is as skilled as he is because he was a straight up dope when he was kidnapped. He was absolutely, um, certainly not afraid of confrontation. So that that hasn't changed. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess it is just his ability. Um, uh, and maybe it also just goes to, uh, show how, how, uh, ineffective the gang is. Yeah, I, I guess so. I, I I actually I think it's an interesting trick in the in the actual screenplay, right? In the script, they hang a lantern on it, right? They because you know that people are going to wonder how did he did he really train himself, you know, in all of these sort of martial arts <laughs> techniques by watching his you know his TV and punching the wall, and he says it. He says it in his inner monologue. I wonder if my self taught skills will allow me to take on these thugs. And at the yeah, end right. of that fight, well, turns out they did. This is great. <laughs> and then we move on with the story, which I guess is fine. Yeah, it, yeah, it works. It's, it works. It's fine. In in context of everything else going on in the film, I think it kind of sets up an element that this is something in the world here that will work. And, mm-hmm. and you see him doing it and you buy into it, you know. I do, he certainly I, I did, has gained yeah. this point of no fear. Right. Right. I totally, I, I did. I mean, to your point, I totally bought into it and, um, and, and I liked it. But I also liked it because for me, this is so much of a movie about, you know, assessing what it means to, uh, to, to seek the truth and to find the truth and to, to try to normalize your life once you have truth in it. And we have these two parties. We have 
Desu, who doesn't know why he was in this in this prison and is on is hell bent to find out the answer why he was in this prison. And then he has to figure out how to live with with that truth. And it's not easy truth. And the other side, we have a guy who knows the truth. And uh, it, it turns out he is equally driven to destruction, uh, which which I think is just such a it's such a wonderful kind of uh, logical ballet that we go through through the course of this film. Did you catch did, did you share that? Well, it is an interesting film of contrast and and the and what we know and what we don't know and how it plays out between um, our protagonist and our antagonist. And I think that uh, what I found so interesting is just this uh, the twisted mentality kind of that that Wu Jin adopts as his logic for for uh, locking Desu up and putting him through this entire process i mean he's like the emperor he really is he puts this plan in place that takes you know like years like 15 years <laughs> to make this thing work yes. not to mention the the time ahead before that just sorting it all out and all the time he was probably fuming before that after his sister died like he's clearly <laughs> been blaming Daesu for a very long time about the death of his sister and has turned it into something very dark and what was really interesting is just how um he had really created uh to the T a very specific plan and and Daesu just kind of went along uh hook line and sinker with every aspect of it so in the world of truths it's just it was really interesting to see exactly what uh Wu Jin knew and how he laid it all out and and how in the pursuit of the truth it it never worked out for Daesu and it didn't work out for for uh, Wu Jin either i mean but he knew it was never going to work out, and he essentially always intended on killing himself at the end of it, which he does. Um, well, and that gets to lesson number – what I think is ultimately lesson number two. Always wait to find out if you really have to cut out your own tongue. <laughs> you always want to wait for that because he didn't really need to do that. You don't want to have to put that on your tombstone. Nope. Should have waited. <laughs> Should have waited. <laughs> <laughs> It's 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 a very uh, a very painful thing to have done, but it's it's uh, it was I don't know in the moment in the the way the film plays out, I think that watching Daesu through that entire final breakdown that he has in front of Wu Jin, um, it is one of the most raw um, and gritty and just hard to watch things that I've seen, and and watching. Uh, these actors, mostly uh, Minsik Choi or Choi Minsik, I guess, as you'd say in in Korean, um, watching him just go through this process. I mean, it's like this was hardcore, intense acting, and I was completely invested that entire time. It was amazing. Yeah, I was too, because, it, you know, you get the it, you can see how he can sort of muscle his way through so much of the movie. But uh, it, it's it, it's real craft to handle that last scene. I mean, that was that was just stunning performance. Let, let's talk a little bit about uh, camera and particularly also editing. You know, I mean, I think you you already mentioned it, that the, the way Park uses camera uh, to play with time and space 
is is quite innovative. What what do you mean by all that? One, it all starts with the story, and the way that he constructs the story um, in the script is incredibly efficient, and the way that we move through time works really well. The editing helps tremendously with that, and the way that he chooses to employ jump cuts to kind of move through space and time is great. Also, the way that they shoot it um, also helps really convey the story and 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 work it in a way that is as effective as possible for this story that is telling whether it's doing split screens you have a fantastic um several split screens one when um time is passing and he's training and you've got him training on one side and you've got world events on the other side um you've also got a nice split screen when he's being uh, hypnotized and you got his face on one half and Wu Jin's on the other half and you kind of see them kind of matching up with each other um, you've got great use of rack focuses of um, the shaky cam, which was really intense. And it reminded me of, um, I think it was almost like uh, Fight Club when uh, Brad Pitt was kind of like looking right in the camera. And it was almost like the jitter effect that the that the camera has. Um, it was like that. There were a couple of times, once when uh, during the sex scene and the other time was when Wu Jin kills Ju Huan uh, in the like the Internet Cafe. Um, the camera just all of a sudden starts getting this shakiness, which really emphasizes uh, the moment. Just there, there's so much stuff going on. The intercutting, the crash zooms, the the way that they composed in mirrors. Uh, it was just, uh, it was it was a really uh, smart use of the tool of the camera and the editing in order to make this story move effectively over its two hour t- running time. Uh, and, and interesting, I think your your point on when we feel that shaky cam in the internet cafe, I, I found it really interesting because I feel like that shaking put us in the perspective of the guy being murdered. It felt like sort of a strange days experience that I just put on the headset, you know, and I, I feel like now, oh, God, I feel like I'm in it now. I'm in it now and he's going to break my neck. And, and that that was, uh, I think, really effective use and very intense. And uh, they, and it's just stuff that he keeps doing in ways that that affect the audience's viewing experience. I, I found it um, equally um, affecting when uh, at the end of the film, when you have uh, Wu Jin in his wackadoo apartment uh, talking into the mirror as he's looking at uh, Desu, who is like way behind him. But it's all incredibly focused in in almost an impossible way where we're looking at at um wu jin uh his reflection and it's just like an extreme close-up of his face Mm -hmm. and then in the deep background through the mirror we have uh desu completely in focus and I, i i every time i looked at this i'm like this has to be a faked shot there's no way that the camera is effectively getting all of that in focus through a mirror because there's no diopter trickery here i mean it really felt like a no. mass composite like it yeah it really right did. it's like yeah. it absolutely did. It, it did it was it, it was fantastic and it 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 puts you in a very strange place in the scene and uh I, i'm I can only hope that his apartment, speaking of the production design, kicks off some great new Netflix original extreme closets of Korea because that was amazing. <laughs> I just wonder, uh, what does he do with it? Because then it's just like a giant box in his living room yeah. when when he's not doing anything. I guess you just decorate it. <laughs> 
<laughs> but and, he didn't. It was like no, completely austere. Just a, what was a giant <laughs> box? Well, yeah, it was crazy. What's that giant box right there? Oh, that's my closet. <laughs> oh, oh, okay. Yeah, all of <laughs> his pictures volumes. were over on the other wall. Right. <laughs> right. So weird. So weird. And well, of course, he had, uh, you know, the water element, yeah. too, that sort of surrounds the closet. It was a work of art. His his apartment well, was a work of art. And I, I think this is an interesting uh, talking about his apartment and that whole element. It's an interesting point to bring into the discussion, the whole comparison of this film to uh, the story of Oedipus Rex and and mm-hmm. and uh, just kind of how or Oedipus the king and, and how. Um, his relationship, that character's relationship with the gods in the story, I think, um, it was some people say it, it, it felt like this was kind of adapted from some of that. And it, it there is this interesting sense that, um, that Wu Jin and his sister are kind of almost treated like these Greek gods in this story. And, and, uh, Desu is the is the uh, the mortal who happened to see them philandering as gods are wont to do and and when you get to that crazy uh, uh, and, well and uh, my point was his apartment feels very much like this otherworldly place right you've got like the river running through it you've got this crazy box that opens up and there's like this magical place where clothes are and and, well, glass and it's high things everywhere. up in yeah. the in the building it looks right. like the perspective from the mount right exactly exactly so it very much feels that way and when you take that even further and you go to the 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 scene where uh Desu is like reliving his memories in that crazy sepia tone um and he's um following his younger self who's following Wu Jin's younger self um it's like this weird MC Escher staircase, like sort of thing where they're just going on these stairs and the shots were done in such a creative way where it made it feel like I was in Escher's painting and it was this otherworldly place, which also goes to say, to show that this was a mortal following the gods into their realm where he then perceived them, uh, them having sex. It, that way, it cannot underscore how cool that sequence was. Uh, mostly because, again, it demonstrates something I have never seen. Right? That the perspective of him as the old man, uh, the old boy, right, following the young boy, following the others as a way to manifest a flashback. Uh, I thought was exceptional i mean it was absolutely expert storytelling i it is just another in a long list of things that i've never seen uh, done uh in in film yeah it's it's uh one of the most creative ways to to have a character exploring his memories trying to remember something yeah i I just i i thought it was just brilliant We, we didn't talk about the ants andy Oh. And I feel like when we were talking about this movie, that we were doing this movie, uh, we talked to dear friend uh, Tommy Handsome, who actually said that I think he said he liked this movie. I find that highly dubious. I had completely forgotten about the ants in this movie. It's horrible. <laughs> and he didn't even make it through the end of Ant-Man. And in that movie, the ants were the good guys. Like, how did he handle the giant ant person like sitting on the train? Sitting on the train. This was ants burrowing in this in and out of skin 
on his arm, and it didn't seem to phase Desu at all. Uh, watching the ant come out of his skin, it was horrible. I don't know if if it was worse with ants or worse with spiders in um, what was it? The hidden, I think. Oh, uh, is that what it was? No, it I wasn't the hidden. I, I feel like the spiders has been has been uh, well trod as well. What was the one with the? Was it one of the creep show ones where there was a bite? Well, was that it was that one with Martin Sheen and I'm blanking on what it is. It's not um, the Believers. Oh, the Believers. He yeah. put something in the woman's uh, makeup, her powder, and she powders her face and and like has this whole thing of this thing on the side of her face and it's a spider egg sac that pops and spiders cover her. And... Nope. No thanks. No thanks. Good talk. I think I prefer the ants. <laughs> Speaking of animals, though, mm-hmm. we also have the octopus getting devoured. What'd you think of that? In context of the story, it's just a, a complete shock of a thing to happen when he walks in uh, to the sushi shop and and he just says, uh, you know, uh, I want to eat a living thing. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, oh. And, and I guess in context of everything that's happened to him, you know, this 15-year imprisonment and then this sudden release that's completely unexpected with no... Uh, warning um, and now he's trying to figure out what to do and what's going on um, it uh, I, I I kind of buy into it I buy into the fact that he's just at a loss for anything and, and this is just something that is is a way to kind of ground him in reality I think not to mention the fact which we learn later is that there is this whole hypnosis thing going on and and he's only here in this sushi restaurant because um, he's hypnotized to have gone there and to have ordered something and she's hypnotized to react to him and all that sort of stuff. I think it's really interesting. That's a that was a big octopus. That was a that was a big octopus. What you know, I I feel like so th- this is one of the things having lived there that the, you run across. And when you go out to, you know, bars and rest, restaurants anywhere, they serve, you know, sushi that you can you can order live octopus. It's not. Some most of the time it's not actually live. It's like cut up because, of, but because of the way octopus nervous system works, it's still moving. In some cases, you can get these small octopuses. You can go get these things, and you can order them, and you can eat them. And I'll never forget when we moved in there. I was there as a teacher, and the first thing that the the boss said is, you know, if if a business person takes you out for drinks. And then says, you should totally do this. You should not because, because of the way the octopuses are, uh, you know, and their nervous systems are still, their suckers are still working and people die doing this, especially if they're drunk, right? Because they'll, they'll eat an octopus and the suckers will stick. They won't chew it up enough and the suckers will stick in their esophagus and then they'll suffocate and die. I thought that's what happened in this sequence, that this was a way to demonstrate that he was not um, not himself and that he tried, he just didn't chew it enough and, and that he was suffocating because he tried to eat this octopus um, and, and that he was, you know, his you know, eyes were too big for his mouth in, in this case. So I was totally stuck on Korean cuisine and missed the, the whole hypnosis thing. Well, we don't get that until later. Yeah. I know, yeah. but it, that's what I mean. Like I went back and I was like, "Oh, that's I, I see, I see that. I missed the hand, the touching, like all of those pieces. I had to go watch it again." Well, it's uh, I, I'm going to think about that now when uh, 
because you told me to eat the live octopus when I visited you. Yes. And I did. And, you uh, did, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. so thank you for that. Well, eventually you do. You. Eventually. See, it's really important <laughs> that you drink just enough to be able to do it and not enough to forget to chew. <laughs> Yes, yes. Thank you. So, for you that. know, <laughs> you are a you are a better person for having done it, right? Don't you think that's a story? It is. It really so, is. Andy, that and the uh, you're welcome. Upwards, so, yes. <laughs> Yummy. You're welcome. <laughs> what I thought was interesting, uh kind of unrelated, but uh, uh Min Sik who does it is he's a Buddhist and because he was, you know, <laughs> basically killing a living thing, um, he, he prayed before he ate it and he actually had to do this four times. So there were four octopuses that he had to eat oh. and he prayed for each one before he ate it. And, uh, oh, luckily he chewed well enough because he did not choke or die. It, yes, it is a dangerous thing. He did. He did very well. It was believable. What do you make of the ending? Uh, he goes, we, we've already talked about the last shot when we were talking about the trailer, but, um, you want to set up the, the ending shot and what it means? It's it's this ending that is purposefully ambiguous um, per uh, Park Chan-wook. He kind of created it that way and intended to not be very understandable. We have a, an older looking Daesu. He's definitely got a lot of gray hair now who, who's sitting in like this mountain setting with a forest mountain setting with a woman reading this letter. And it turns out she's the hypnotist who had hypnotized him. And he's asking her, she kind of read his letter and is asking him, um, you know, or, you know, he, he's, she's saying, you know, I'll hypnotize you. You want to forget all of this. Um, I will do it, but there's no guarantee it'll work, basically. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And um, so she does this hypnosis. And, and of course, he can't speak. So it's just, you know, him looking at her and, and her reading the letter. Um, she hypnotizes him and he's in, he's back in Wu Jin's um, apartment, uh, the trash department. And he goes and he looks out the window and he sees his reflection. And she does this whole thing about the, you know, the monster in you is the one that has this memory and the monster is going to turn away and walk until the, and every step the monster gets a year older. And when the monster hits 70, he'll fall over and die. And you've got him looking at his reflection in the mirror or in the window. And then you have the actual him and the actual him kind of turns and walks out and the reflection of him kind of keeps looking. And when he comes to in the forest, um, uh, Mido strangely is there and strangely looks exactly the same age wise, just in a completely red outfit. And, um, and she, she, they, they, you know, come, she comforts him and, and she's like, who is here with you? And you have this moment where you look at these footsteps through the snow, the camera tracks along all these footsteps from him all the way back to, uh, the two chairs. And what I find so interesting is like, okay, so, so he is the one who walked the, the, the steps over there. He's not over by the uh, when he wakes up, he's not the one who's by the table. He's the one who's far away. And that look that he gives as, as they stand and hug, it's this really interesting, um, kind of broken smile on his face. And, and what I found so interesting is like, is he saying that 
the hypnosis didn't work and he's frustrated and like he's kind of painfully aware that it's not going to work and here he is hugging her knowing the truth or is he hugging her having had his mind basically erased and he really has no idea what's going on. I found it so um, kind of brilliant the way that he constructed this ending where you don't know. And I love that there are kind of these options of what could really be going on here. I, I was less in the um, the ambivalent camp. Um, I totally see what you're talking about. But for me, so much of this movie is, I mean, so much of his character is about the the horrific awareness of the fact that he is deeply in love and lust with this woman, Mido, and aware that Mido is also his daughter with whom he has had sex. And that is a horrible thing for him to have to live with. And I was watching a really interesting conversation, a, a presentation by Park Chan-wook who talks about, he's asked a question uh, by a member of the audience in this particular panel. And, and he gives this answer, right? He says, um, you know, this is a guy who, who can't live with the monster that he is inside, but he also can't live without the love and lust for his daughter. And, as soon as I heard that, I went back and I watched the final sequence again. And to me, it reads so much like it's the monster that won, that what we see in the in the reflection when he's standing in the apartment, the monster is the one that turns and walks away. And then we're back in the snow and it turns out it was the monster who took the steps away from the table in the first place. So what we're left with is this guy who is the monster. He is he is the the one who's going to live in relationship with this this sort of daughter figure in his mind. He's going to have to live with that. I don't know what I don't know is if the daughter was real because as you said, like he is he's definitely aged, she has not. And that leads me to believe that that what we're left with at the end of the movie, this whole journey is maybe there's another him that's gone on another path. But the last one that we see is the monster. Yeah, it's such an interesting ending. And I love that it leaves uh, multiple readings where you can kind of take it different ways. I love um, it. I love it. it. Oh. The It's much better than the, the uh, remake version where – um, you know, he, my recollection of it is he just can't take what happened. And I can't remember how it resolves with the daughter, but basically he goes and he pays the, the, um, the prison guy, the prison owner to just lock him up again. And he goes back into prison to stay there the rest of his life. I don't care for that. It's I haven't even seen it. I don't care for it. Yeah, it's pretty bad. Um, uh, this, so you was... recommend I go catch it, right? You recommend oh. I watch it then? Absolutely not. The um, I I think uh, this is just one of the most uh, powerful endings that I've seen in a long time. It hit me so strongly when I see his face there, and and perhaps that's why I was so bothered earlier that they show it in the trailer because it's such a it's such a, a powerfully um, uh, emotional shot. What you're seeing in his face, and um, and to have that given away before you get to it i think is just uh a sin <laughs> a sin that's right that's big talk andy mm -hmm. let's do the deep scene dive andrew let's do it we're doing of course the hallway scene uh this is the the corridor fight 
Uh, I I think it roughly starts at about 4240. I really struggled with where to start this, uh, whether or not we wanted to include any of the dental damage that is done in the sequence immediately before it, uh, <laughs> because after all that leads into it, this is his escape from the building after the dental damage, and he uh, it, it runs um, through about 45, 48 or so. And uh, so we get a good solid couple of minutes of this long lateral tracking shot uh, as uh, Desu uh, fights a whole lot of guys with a hammer. And to me, this sequence looks disturbingly real. It uh, is a beautifully done shot. It really is just um, just very stunning to see what they accomplish with just the stunt work and making all of this stuff fly in a very realistic way and knowing that they essentially did this shot i mean like you said there's more than just the long shot in this in this scene but the bulk of it is this shot it's i mean it's a good two and a half minutes just watching him Mm -hmm. uh, laterally go through the hallway as he takes everybody down um it's it's a really just beautifully done uh bit of work Uh, reading it it took 17 takes for them to get it perfect uh, it was one continuous take. They, it took them over the course of three days to do it. There was no editing of any kind in it. The only thing that they did edit was the knife that was stabbed into his back. That was a CG knife. Otherwise, the whole thing is them just going through the process of doing stunts and 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 actually performing this whole thing. It's it's really mind boggling. There was a there was a rumor there was a, they'll call it lore that Park Chan Wook actually intentionally tired Choi out for artistic purposes that he wanted him to be uh, exhausted he wanted him to look exhausted uh, and so he intentionally did take after take after take so that he could tire him out and uh, Park said in the documentary I don't did you watch Old Days uh, the documentary uh, that came out I did not. with this one. Okay. Um, I I didn't either. I just watched clips of it. I couldn't find the whole thing. Um, But he does say in here that that was a misunderstanding that he said, and and I thought this was an interesting way to put it. I wish I were cold-blooded enough to push ahead with things like that. But there was a moment, I admit, that things became very intriguing. The scene looked increasingly stylish the more tired Chemin-Sik became. Uh, and I, I thought that was interesting because it's it's not his his motivations were not diabolical, but the end result is the same. He managed to get an exhausted Chaimin Seek, and uh, I think the result of that is is just absolutely on film. It is he looks totally beaten down, and and again it puts me in the perspective of his character. I am I am exhausted by the workout of getting out of this hallway. It's it's just crazy. It's also um, really, I mean, like I, we were saying, it's him doing most of like his stunts here. I mean, he, yeah. uh, Choi Min Sik, trained for uh, six weeks and did uh, most of his stunt work, and this was like all him. Um, and uh, just watching him take on all of these guys, I mean, it's just an amazing. Uh, bit of work and what i love about it what i think also just makes it so um feel so real um and perhaps more so than a lot of other ones i mean i love all of the the um similar types of shots that have been done since this i think it's this has established this really exciting way of doing action scenes and seeing them do it in um uh why am i blanking on the blind uh daredevil Uh, daredevil Daredevil. um 
was a, a, a great example of, of how you could kind of recreate that and do something really neat with it. But what I loved here is this is a guy who gets tired. I mean, he gets knocked down and all the guys come in and start kicking at him and stuff. And then all of a sudden he kind of jumps up again and he kind of gets another wave of energy and takes him on. And then they kind of, and they're getting tired. And the guy who's been hit the leg is kind of hobbling along toward him. I mean, it, everyone, um, you know, is affected by the fight. They're not just like superhumans doing this. And right. I felt that felt really authentic. Well, and I, I don't want to go too far outside of the scene, but at the end of the sequence, he gets to the end of the hall and he's got his, he, he's, he's, we've got this beautiful close up uh, on his face over his shoulder and he is facing an elevator that's out of frame. We can't see it. But what we see over his shoulder is the sheer damage that he has done behind him. All of the bodies, the people who are kind of writhing on the floor in this poorly lit corridor. And then we hear the ding of the of, of the uh, elevator. He's got this blood trickle that kind of comes right down the middle of his neck. And then you hear the doors open and he smiles. And this leads us to this moment of comedy after this sequence of incredible violence where we see that the elevator, it turns out, is full of more thugs. It is full of probably eight, I don't know, maybe more thugs <laughs> who are in there. And the next shot is a wide shot of the wall as the elevator opens clearly on another floor. And this is that Park Chan-wook comedy. All of the bodies just tumble out of the elevator that and clearly you know our hero has had his way with these guys in close quarters now but we see none of that violence right we just get the moment of of sort of comedic relief that is punctuation on this sequence and i think it's so so strong as he steps over the bodies to get back out of the building and then it cuts to him out in the street and he's like covered in blood and he's hobbling along it's like this is a broken yeah. man. <laughs> he is broken. But boy, does he, uh, you know, he's got this this rage in him where he really kind of becomes this berserker. And uh, yeah, yeah, makes for a really interesting uh, character. And it's interesting because last week in Sympathy for Mr. Vengeance, we really talked about how our protagonist in that film, Rio, um, who, you know, was uh, really became this broken this broken figure and turned into this guy who was really more of this animal, more of this berserker. And what was interesting in that film is we lost a sense of him as our protagonist and really started following the father. In this particular film, we really stick with, uh, with, uh, day And, uh, and even when he goes into the crazy berserker mode, um, he still is our protagonist and we never really, join with uh with uh, uh Wu Jin even though I guess you could say to a certain extent we can kind of understand his perspective you know he's not a guy that we end up liking right even though we we understand his perspective and I think that's the the problem we have a greater affinity with the father and I never found an affinity with Wu Jin yeah the the uh, uh Desu uh Chemin Sik not only is did he end up pulling off an incredible action performance, this is also a, an incredible character performance. He is a different guy in the beginning sequence, not literally a different actor, but clearly a different guy in the opening sequence in the police station uh, than he is for the rest of the movie. 
Yeah, he he lost a ton of weight. Um, I, I don't know exactly how true it is, but uh, Park said that it was that it was like deadly weight loss. You know that he lost a ton of weight to play the character through the bulk of the film, and at the very end of the schedule, he gained a ton of weight back and got kind of fat so that they could shoot that opening when he is drunk in the police department. Did it surprise you to hear that they shot that opening at the end? No, I, it's one of those things where I, I I understand how they do these things with actors and their bodies and stuff. It's like, you know, Tom Hanks in Castaway or Christian Bale in uh, whatever that one was called. Oh, the yeah. The Machinist. The Machinist. Machinist, yeah. 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 Mechanic. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and so that was the thing that puzzled me. Like, I couldn't figure out, is it which is more efficient for an actor's body? Is it to fatten up? Do you do that more quickly than you lose the weight? I guess it, I guess that makes sense. Yeah, I don't know. I'm not sure what's actually the most effective. Either way, it's not good for your body. No, not <laughs> a healthy think... thing. Not no, not yeah. a good thing. He was amazing in this. Uh, in this, and, it, and we haven't talked about any of the the thugs, the the sort of unnamed thugs. But this was a this was a sequence of some uh, fantastic choreography by a lot of people who um, you know undertake sort of good solid uh, uh, weight of personal risk when they jump into a melee like this. And it was, it was really beautifully done. Absolutely. Uh, camera by Chung Un Chung. Yeah. We've talked about, uh, we've talked about kind of most of the stuff going on with uh, the camera that we've really liked, yep. but it was nice to see when it came time to do this, just the way they designed that tracking shot. It was just a very fluid, it was clean and it works really well in context with the, uh, with what's happening here. Production designed by Song, uh, Ryu Songhe. Um, and, uh, I, you know, I don't really have anything else to say about that other than the fact that it was, uh, it, it was a, a beautiful hallway in a personal prison, indie prison. It was <laughs> the gross. Indie prison world. Yeah. You know what I will say about the production design, uh, in the rooms all had such great looks and, and these, we don't, we're not in them, but in these prison rooms, like his room had, I don't know, something about the wallpaper was just so fantastic. I loved it. My favorite though, was the wallpaper in the room that he goes to when uh, his buddy calls him and, and gives him the address for where Evergreen is. And it's like, he realizes it's the the apartment across the way and yeah. he runs down and he runs upstairs and he finds uh, Hu Jin in it. And, uh, is just like, uh, um, that apartment had like this weird honeycomb look on the walls. And it, I was just in love with the design. It's something about the idea of like being in, inside these little, you know, spaces like that. I just, I thought that it was really very effectively, uh, created for this world. We've already talked about the script as a as a uh, just a wonderfully efficient uh, work. Chan, uh, Park Chan Wook, uh, uh, Lim Chun Hyung, Wang Jo Yun, and Garen Sushia, uh, with story credit with uh, Nobuaki Minegishi. This was based on a Japanese manga that I have not read, but I put a link in the show notes if anybody's interested. Have you read it? I have not, but I was looking at it after I found out because I didn't know it was based on manga. But yeah, Garen uh, Tsushia and Nobuaki Aminigishi created this Japanese uh, story that essentially is this um, uh, this take on this this uh, thing that happens to this, this guy who... Uh, 
you know, has gets imprisoned and then has to go track down the identity of his captors and figure out what the heck is going on. Um, my reading up on it, though, it sounds like uh, what Park Chan-wook and his team did is they, they took the basic setup and the title from it, but the plot and the characters and really everything else, they really reworked it. Um, the the source that I was reading said that it blows away the Ijime-obsessed faux-existentialist machismo of the original. So, Well, that sounds like a step in the right direction because I don't know what any of those words mean. <laughs> I don't either. <laughs> I don't know what Ijime is. <laughs> uh, but, oh, you bullying. Know, it's bullying. They, yeah, they really cleaned up the bullying in Old Boy. <laughs> I think that's the number one thing we can say. There's less bullying <laughs> oh my also there's more hammering whatever you make your trade-off Boy, that's, uh, that's quite the weapon park chan uh, as a director i uh, adore this especially after watching last week's movie i just i'm finding him a very engrossing director and this this series is making me want to uh invest some more time to dig into his other works you yeah. know I, I never saw stoker i still haven't seen that so i want to check it out i want to go back and rewatch jsa because it's been uh, a very long time I, it was shortly after it came out that i watched mm-hmm. it so i mean it's been so long so he's a director that's definitely worth um revisiting other cast and crew yuji tai as uh Wu Jin. boy is he the handsome bad guy <laughs> he definitely is Yes, what's, he is. You know what's interesting about uh, about him, just in terms of how they use him, not just uh, you know uh, Yuji Tai as the as the actor, but how they use that character. I thought that was actually really interesting that they gave him the dead man switch. Right, that he has this button that presumably would kill him because it would stop the pacemaker that he uh, that he has in his chest, and we find out that that was that was not true, uh, but. Uh, what a great MacGuffin. Yeah, he's just, he's, he is such a great opposite, right? Yeah. In like this yin-yang world of of uh, these two characters. He is this much more peaceful, pleasant, attractive, um, uh, just everything that's opposite of Desu. And, and again, going back to kind of that that uh, view through the eye of like Greek tragedies, here he is. He does seem very much like this Greek god. I mean, even just the way that that Park Chan cast him and had him perform and and designed his world, he just feels otherworldly through this. I was really uh, taken by his performance here, and um, and when we get to his final moment, that moment in the elevator when he's, you're reliving the moment of uh, his, uh, that end of his sister when she uh, commits suicide and you see exactly how it happens. Mm-hmm. It is really, really heartbreaking and brilliantly designed because we go from that as he's, as, as he lets her go to, we see the way that his hand all of a sudden curls, like he's holding a gun and he cocks it and he kills himself in the elevator just brilliant brilliantly done well and and the parallel between the way he's holding on to his sister's hand and the way Dave sue was holding on to the tie of the guy in the very beginning the first shot right uh, ends yeah. up being a wonderful little parallel too when you talk about opposites and you know opposite intention i thought it was fantastic kong hee jong is as mido she was uh, equally uh, gloriously innocent and what a uh, 
what a balance, I think, to uh, everything that was going on with Daesu. And it was interesting. It was, it, it's, it's one of those, you know, uh, you know, June, uh, June, December romances, whatever you yeah. want to call it. Yeah. May, December. Where it felt right? a little off that she was, yeah. she was hooking up with him so easily. It all makes sense as you get to the end and you see exactly kind of what it was that brought them together. Mm-hmm. But uh, it was just, there was, a real like touching way that their relationship worked. And yes, it was kind of creepy the way that she's just like, you know, uh, you know, when we finally do it, I want you to really give it to me. It was, it was just, it was just off putting the way that she kind of, uh, was acting with him. But I really liked her as a character. And I, I was really just kind of moved by, um, the development of her relationship with Daisu over the course of the film. How to do an award season, Andy? This ought to be a treat for everybody. Uh, this was a very uh, successful, very popular film. It had 38 wins and uh, 18 nominations. It was uh, it just it received like all over the place, getting recognition. Except except here at the Oscars, it wasn't like Oscar fair really. But I mean, you look at at the awards at uh, at in Asia. It, it this played at the Cannes Film Festival, where it won. Uh, Park Chan Wook won the uh, the grand prize, uh, the jury grand prize at the Cannes Film Festival, and the film was nominated for the Palme d'Or. That went to um, Fahrenheit 9/11, which I thought was kind of an interesting. I, I guess that's how it is at Cannes Film Festival. Everything's just kind of lumped in. Yeah, together. right. Right. But um and you can certainly see why that's there's there are things about that film that that would stand out, but still there's something about this and it's just a thrill that that it was received so well at the Cannes Film Festival. But if you look at at the awards uh, over in Korea, the uh, Korean Association of Film Critics Awards, it was a big winner. It it got um it was nominated for 5 awards and it won all 5 best film, best director, best actor for Choi Min-sik, best new actress for Kang Hye-jong and the best music, which we haven't talked about for uh, Jo Young-wook, uh, which I really did enjoy the way that the music worked in this film is very um very touching, very um, powerful score. But it was just it was one of those movies that uh, that did get um, just a ton, just a ton of awards. Obviously, it has had some attention for remakes. We've already uh, celebrated your opinion of the remake. But this Spike Lee version was not the only version that has been associated with old boy. (laughs) Yeah, in 2006, there was a Bollywood film made called Zinda that apparently bears a very striking resemblance to uh, to this film, but isn't actually an officially sanctioned remake. And I guess what happened was it was under investigation for being a remake, but no legal action was taken um, because the studio behind this film ended up shutting down. Um, and th- it all happened at the same time that um, Steven Spielberg, he was actually attached to direct the the Hollywood remake of the film with Will Smith starring in the lead role. Um, and I guess this all happened at the same time where all these lawsuits were happening. So they, you know, so this company was going to sue the people behind Zinda. Well, at the same time, the manga publisher sued them, 
because the um, they want there's some argument about the Hollywood remake rights, and so that that is it sounds like that is that lawsuit is what caused that the production company to get shut down, Show East, and um, and the, all the people like kind of disappeared, and I you know I don't know who has the rights, but eventually Spielberg and Will Smith obviously dropped out and. The lawsuit against Zinda never happened, so the film exists peacefully. And uh, Spike Lee ended up uh, somehow getting uh, to do the the 2013 remake. The rest, as they say, is history. Well, what I read about that was that he made a like a very long version, like two and a half hours or something like that, and the studio forced him to cut it to I think under two hours, and he was very upset because he had to cut a lot of stuff out. And uh, he and um, uh, Josh Brolin, who starred in it, were both very upset with the the end result. And uh, but because the film didn't do well, they're not sure if that longer version will ever be released. So as much as I was upset that that version existed because I really d- just didn't like it at all, it did make me wonder if the longer version would be something I'd like. So. I sure wonder about that too. Yeah. I, I hope you get a chance to see that someday. I hope if if you ever watch it, I hope that's the version you get to watch. I will report back dutifully. Excellent with um, the results. How to do at the box office? Well, it looks like the failure at the box office of Sympathy for Mr. Vengeance meant that uh, Chan Wook got less money for this film. He got a million less, working with $3 million for this film, or $3.9 million in today's dollars. The movie premiered in South Korea on November 21st, 2003, where it did gangbusters, quickly becoming the fifth highest grossing South Korean film of the year. And that is in an incredible year for South Korean films anyway. It's the same year that Bong Joon-ho's uh, film Memories of a Murder opened, also A Tale of Two Sisters, The Uninvited, Spring, Summer, Fall, Winter, and Spring, and Silmido. Um, so it was just a great year. Uh, for Korean films. It also played at the Cannes Film Festival the following May, where it was a huge hit, and then finally opened on five screens in the U.S. March 25th, 2005, opposite the remake everybody's already forgotten about, Guess Who? The movie did well enough here, earning 707.5 thousand. In the rest of the world, it made 14.3 million, meaning it earned 19.6 million in today's dollars. That leaves the movie with an adjusted profit per finished minute of $131,000. That, paired with its acclaim, helped Chan Wook further build his career as a director to watch. And so he has. Andy, I am so glad we watched this movie uh, because it's. Uh, I'm just having a delightful time getting to know Chan Wook uh, a little bit more. Uh, I had a terrific time with this movie. Uh, and I, I know it's hard to watch and I know a lot of people had some trouble with it. Uh, but it, I'm, I'm delighted that it's on our list. Uh, and, and I, I can't wait to see what comes next. Absolutely. I think it's probably time for us to rank it. Let's do it. Head over to flickchart.com slash the next reel. You'll see our list of movies, all of them that we've talked about on this very show, or you can just swipe over in the show notes, tap the word flick chart. It will take you right to this film where you can add it to your ranking and see how it stacks up to ours. All right. First up, we have Old Boy or The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo with Numi. Old Boy. Uh, yeah, Old Boy. Old Boy or Live Free or Die Hard. Old Boy. I'm going to say Old Boy. Old Boy or Star Trek Two: The Wrath of Khan. Old Boy. What? 
Wow. I stand by my decision. I am. I'm shocked. I'm a little shocked. I'm going to say Star Trek 2. And here we go. Here it is. One, two, three. Three. Rock. Rock. Scissors. I was going to say hammer just to. I was too. That would have been brilliant. (laughs) All right. Well, you take it. Old boy wins this time. Uh, I want to see uh, Captain Kirk now going, Daisu! Daisu! <laughs> or I guess you have to go, Woo, Jim! You'll have to come down here. <laughs> Old boy or all the president's men? It's going to be all the president's men for me. Uh, yep, me too. But you see what kind of territory we're playing in right now. Like, Old Boy oh. is an exceptionally yeah. strong film for me. Yeah, I know. It, it topped Star Trek too. I'm a little shocked by that. Old Boy or Nine Queens? Two fantastic films. I'm going to say Old Boy, though. I'm going to say Old Boy as well. Old Boy or Room? Wow. Mm, That is a tough one. The performances in Room, in particular before the escape, were just so strong. And I was so wussy. I don't know if you remember. I was called wussy, as were you. Uh, Yeah, Yeah, we're we're the wussy boys. I'm going to say Room. I'm going to say room too. That's a, that's a really, I mean, all of these are already just yeah, way too hard. Right, right. Old boy or Casino Royale? Casino Royale. Casino Royale. Old boy or Paranorman? Old boy. Old boy. Yeah. That, that does it. Old boy is number 30. Wow. On our chart. It jumped way up there, which wow. is really fantastic uh, to see that it, uh, that it made it so high. Yeah, yeah, truly. Uh, that is that is just wonderful and a, a wonderful celebration of some incredible performances. And on my, oh man, my flick chart, this is, this is really a, a statement on how broken my flick chart is right now. How did it do on yours? On my flick chart, it ended up at 493 out of 39.33, which is at an 87%. See, mine ended up at 314 out of 10.16, which is a 69%. And if I were Ooh. to go off the algorithm there, I should be a three and a half star. That is an absolute flick chart failure. <laughs> this is for me over at letterbox.com slash the next reel. This is a five star and a heart film. It is for me too, which is good to know. <laughs> yes, it is. Good to know, Andy. <laughs> uh, I. <laughs> so what is that? Uh, that we there, there we did. We, we have old boy on the list now. It's official. Where do we go from here? We are going to be wrapping up the Vengeance Trilogy next week with the uh, the final film in this unofficial trilogy that uh, Park Chan-wook directed it is going to be Lady Vengeance sometimes called Sympathy for Lady Vengeance um, but it's pretty much just Lady Vengeance uh, from 2005 and uh, I this is the other one that I have not seen of the series so I'm looking forward to jumping into this one I haven't seen it I hadn't even heard of it I am ready to watch it I, I may even do it tonight Andy who knows? Wow. Who knows? Holy cow. Crazy, uh, man. This is fantastic. The next reel couldn't happen without the hard work of Stephen Smart, who runs our Instagram program. You remember Ben Steerick helping out over there. Ben Lott of The Blot Spot runs all things on Twitter. And the next reel theme, Ragtime Instrumental, by the great Eli Catlin, which you can find on his SoundCloud channel of the same name. When the movie ends, everybody. 
our conversation begins. Amazon giveth Andy. As Amazon always doeth. <laughs> some of these are really delightful. Does it make you, when you read some of these one-star reviews, I assume you're doing a one-star review. Is that correct? I am doing All a right. one-star review. Yes. Does it, when you read these reviews, do you feel dirty at all? <laughs> I don't feel dirty while reading the reviews. Uh, no. No, I feel a little dirty because it makes me think maybe I saw a different movie. Like maybe my eyes are tuned, <laughs> you know, dirty. Uh, you, you've got the dirty switch on your <laughs> apparently, eyes. Apparently, yes. apparently I do. Uh, as Southern Hummingbird uh, gave this a, a one-star review back in 2015, who says, this movie made me want to throw up. I so regret buying this film and watching it in its entirety. It's a shame, too, because it started off intriguing. But then it seems someone else with a one-track mind took over the rest of the movie. I was hoping that the film would change course, but it stayed on that road to hell. Honestly, this would have been better off as a 25-minute porno film. <laughs> now... I'm neither going to confirm or deny my relationship with pornography, but I assure you, this is not a porno film. <laughs> <laughs> but would it have been a better film? <laughs> That's the question. <laughs> Six stars and a like. <laughs> What's yours? I have, I, I have a one star by Laser Point. Who hated this movie. Here's the plot. A young guy wrongs another fellow who, as an adult, has become a powerful zillionaire who can really hold a grudge. The zillionaire devises multiple torments for the hero, who doesn't know who is behind it and becomes an enraged psycho from all the bad stuff that has been happening to him over many years. The bad stuff includes 15 years imprisonment for unknown reasons, lots of violence, and incestuous sex. So what could possibly go wrong? I really wanted to like this, and I read the reviews. Dark, disturbing, etc., etc., etc. I didn't find it to be any of those things. For me, it was a ponderous, pretentious piece of crap. On the other hand, I watched it on Christmas Day. Probably not a good combo. <laughs> That's amazing! That's amazing! He hated this movie because it wasn't dark and incestuous enough! <laughs> And apparently the whole idea of watching on Christmas <laughs> turned it, like, it really confused him. Uh. Oh, that is delightful. I am so glad that you surfaced that review. Thank you. And thank you, Amazon. You know what I got the other day, Pete? Stephen King's latest. Want to borrow it? Do you know who you're talking to? What do you mean? Andy, when's the last time I read a paper book? It's been like decades. I would much rather use Kindle, or better yet, Audible. What am I thinking? I don't read paper books anymore either. I am an audiobook guy all the way. For those of you looking to listen to the books behind the films we talk about here on The Next Reel, get a free audiobook download and 30-day free trial at thenextreel.com slash 
Audible. Okay, we're going to play a little game. I'm going to name a series from season seven, and you try to guess how many movies from it were adaptations. <laughs> nice. I own this game. We shall see. Here we go, starting with an easy one. The Millennium Trilogy. <laughs> Seriously? The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, The Girl Who Played With Fire, The Girl Who Kicked the Hornet's Nest. Die Hard. Uh, well, Die Hard 1 and 2. Except Nothing Lasts Forever, which is where Die Hard came from, isn't on Audible. What? Crime of the Century! Okay, 1968 musicals. Uh, Mary Poppins. Nice. We've covered a lot of great movies that started as books. Books like East of Eden, Giant. Or All You Zombies, upon which Predestination was based. So many great movies from so many great sources, and they're all on Audible. Producing this podcast is a lot of fun, but takes a lot of time. We've dropped the dynamically inserted ads because they're so annoying and have no connection to our content. Plus, they just jam those things in wherever they see fit. We listened to you when you said you didn't like them, so now we're directly appealing to you, our dear listener. Please consider an Audible subscription to help support The Next Reel and our family of podcasts. I have been using Audible along with my family for decades now. I love it, and I have read hundreds of books through it. I couldn't be more pleased with their service, and I know you'll love it too. Head to thenextreel.com slash audible and get your free trial. It really helps us out, and you have a world of over 200,000 audiobooks open to you. So much great material available. Dive in with a free 30-day trial at thenextreel.com slash audible. Start listening to amazing audiobooks of your favorite movie source material with your first free audiobook today. That's thenextreel.com slash audible. 